First Peter. So we've been studying First Peter four, been re- working our way through it. We're in chapter or First Peter. We're now in chapter four, and we're going to look at we're going to look at this section beginning in verse seven. Um, as a guy who loves, loves, loves coherence, I like finding big chunks and showing the internal thing. But very often in the epistles, what will happen is that they'll kind of start like, and another thing, and another thing, and another thing. So we're going to cover a few different topics in this thing, and I'll, I'll try to show you how they relate. Um, I think there's a, there's a relationship here, but it's going to start to feel a little staccato, I think. But here's our text. Here's what I want you to hear. 1 Peter 4, verse 7. You ready? We all there? Begins, and it says, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. And above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves... He should do it with all the strength that God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Okay, that's our text. That's what we're going to try to unpack. And there's a lot of things in here that I think are interesting um, and worth noting. And if you think there's something interesting that that I failed to key in on, just shout it out. And we'll just kind of like pull on the thread a little bit. But he begins... With a, what's, what's the fundamental claim? There's a bunch of instructions, but there's a claim that undergirds this whole passage. What is it? The end of all things is near. Okay. This is interesting because he's, how long ago did he say this? Right? I mean, it's been like 2,000 years. So, I mean, not that near, apparently, right? Unless perhaps we misunderstand what he means. So what does it mean when the New Testament says, as it says over and over and over and over again, not just that Jesus is coming, but that he's coming soon? Okay, what does that, you guys, what does that mean? What, what, what have you heard about this, this kind of framework, this expectation that Jesus is coming and he's coming soon? Herrick. That God sees time differently than we do, and then he comes like a thief in the night, so we should always be ready. Okay, so number one, God sees time differently than we do. And the famous kind of, the, the go-to quote on that all the time is, is Peter, actually, who says that with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day, right? But whatever it is, we are supposed to live with a sense of the imminence of his return, right? We don't just believe in the personal bodily return of Christ, but we believe in the imminent return. The, the, any moment is what imminent means. It's, it's right upon us. It's, it's near. It's upon us. So yes, Quig, was that you, bro? Are you going to shout out? I'm saying Jesus said this Truly, truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. Okay. So that's going to make things more complex. Thank you. Okay. So, 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 Quig is in what's called the Olivet Discourse. This is Matthew 24. It's one of the primary passages where Jesus is teaching on his own return, right? Um, and you, if you read the Olivet Discourse, when he says all these, these things will not uh, this generation will not pass away. There's a number of ways that this thing can play out. It might mean that the people that are alive today will be here when I return. It might mean the people that are alive today will be here when something else happens, namely the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Or it could be that this, this community of persons will still be here. Not necessarily this exact person, but this community of persons will, will still persist. And so there's a range of things that people think about that. There's a lot of 
Um, the Olivet Discourse is, is a tricky... Oh, or the other thing that could be that the situation changed. That's another option. Very often the prophets will say, this is going to happen. Jo- Jonah says, hey, uh, 40 days and Nineveh's overturned. But 40 days came and went and Nineveh wasn't overturned. And it wasn't that he was a false prophet. It's that the circumstances actually changed, which could suggest that it is possible for things to happen, but Jesus' return has in fact been delayed by something. And if it's something we are the most likely culprit, right? Our failure to fulfill the Great Commission may in fact be delaying his return, which is really a very interesting thing. Okay, so there's a lot of monkey ways we can go with this. John? The this course really, uh, really refers to two separate events and part of it is destruction of Jerusalem. One stone and it seems to be more Yes. That's right. So what John is saying is that the Olivet Discourse, this passage from Matthew 24, Jesus says, um, is really, there's two, this is, this is true. Everything he's saying right now is true. That the Olivet Discourse is talking about two different events. That the first, the most immediate event, is the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And the second longer term event is the return of Christ. And, and that gap is much wider than perhaps we think than we perhaps would have liked. Although if he came back sooner, you might not have been involved. So, you know, be grateful for his delay. Um, so there's two different things. It's a little bit hard to tell when he's talking about one or the other. Okay? But hang on. Without, if, we get into, if we turn this into all of that, then we're going to be here all day. So let's just do this. Can you tell me, are you able to kind of pull up in your brain? Remember, I'm always a fan of like building the Rolodex in your mind. That you've kind of, you're building this list of passages on any given topic. Where else does the New Testament say he's coming back soon? Not just that he's coming back, but man, I mean, it's like, it's, it's soon. He is near. Where do you have some of these? It's, there's tons of these. They're everywhere. Peter's not strange in this. Jason? At, at the end of Revelation, it says, Behold, I am coming soon. Do not seal up the words of, these, words of this book, because it will happen soon. Absolutely. Revelation 22, the very end of the story, is it, it, actually a repeated refrain throughout Revelation. It begins and ends that way. So in Revelation 22, behold, I am coming soon, Jesus directly. Revelation 1 says, blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. The time is near. The time is near. Where else? Where do you, can you think of others that where it says this, Terry? Well, this always makes me think, you know, well, it is coming soon for each one of us because we're not going to be Okay, so interesting. So Terry's saying, well, since Jesus, Jesus may not come back, you know, for a thousand years, but you'll be dead within 15, and so it is soon in that regard. But, but here's the thing, and there's something true about, there's something true about that, but the risk of that is we never, I don't want to conflate. In fact, I specifically want to, like, separate east from west the anticipation of going to heaven when we die and Jesus' return. Because they're not the same thing. And this is one of the things that was almost like a hobby horse for me. I, I hit this all the time because overwhelmingly people tend to think that we live, we die, we go to heaven and live happily ever after. And that's simply not true. It is not the biblical story. We are not looking forward to our escape to heaven. We're looking forward to Jesus' return to the earth and our resurrection from the dead. So you might be dead in 15 years. But what we're looking forward to is the return of Christ, which might take place prior to that or sometime after that. right? And you might live much longer than 15 years. Okay. That's all you get. The, the clock is ticking for all of us. Indeed. Okay, where, Kat, do you have one of these? Where, where does the New Testament talk about the return of Christ is upon us? Mine was the Old Testament. 
The Old Testament. Why are we looking at the Old Testament? What are you doing? Yeah, go ahead. Let's hear it. What do you got? Okay, so this is an, so Isaiah 6, there, there's this anticipation here. He, that's not about the return of Christ ultimately, but it's talking about Israel um, who is suffering because of all these enemies that have come upon them. But, well, no, that's right, that's right. Okay, so let's, let's go, let's, let's look at some other, other places that you know of, Bob? James 5. Yes, James 5, same, same phrasing, go ahead with that. Uh, you also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Very good. Coming of the Lord is at hand. And in verse 7, was that verse 5? Was that 8? Okay, even, and 7 says the same thing. Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. And then in verse 8, be patient and stand firm because, not just that he's coming, but he's, he's coming soon. His coming is near. All right, so James says it. Peter says it. Who else says it? Revelation 1-3. Yes, very good. Revelation, the beginning and end of Revelation are both going to have this language that it's soon, it's near, he's coming. Very good. Where, where else? You know others? There's a ton of these here. I'll give you, I'll give you a couple. Um, in fact, I'll just blitz through. Unless anybody wants to want to jump in, show off. Nobody? Okay, look, check it out. I'll just, re- just, just listen to it. 1 Corinthians 10. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. Not will come, has come. Paul believed he was already in the end times. Not waiting for it, but he's living in it. 1 John 2. Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you've heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. Romans 13, the night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Philippians 4, let your gentleness be evident to all. You know why? Because the Lord is near soon. Hebrews 10, let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess let us consider how we may spur one another on to love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing. But let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. James 5, you guys did. Um, First Thess, man, this whole section. First Thess is all about the return of Christ. Every chapter is punctuated with this. Um, he has this language, the, the, the day of the Lord coming like a thief in the night. Um, and towards the end of it, he says, Therefore... Encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. Now you think, oh, well, that doesn't say about the return of Christ. No, but the whole book's about the return of Christ. This whole passage about the return of Christ, and he always links it in, in First Thess. There's endlessly, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming soon, and there's always a therefore, and the therefore is exactly what Peter says. Therefore, love one another. Paul says, therefore, let your gentleness be evident to all. Elsewhere it says, therefore, encourage one another. Our, our lives are supposed to be lived in this, in this acutely conscious awareness that his coming is soon. We should be thoughtful and considerate and energetically demonstrate love to other people because, man, it's tomorrow, it's now, it's soon, it's right upon us. I saw a hand somewhere. Robin? That's right. And, and the six that were prepared and watched, and then the six that weren't and tried at the last minute to scurry around. That's right. So I think it's, it's telling us 
That's right. So Matthew 25, you've got the stories of the, of the ten virgins. Jesus tells story after story after story. And Robin is pointing out the one. Come on one second, Brad. Robin's pointing out the one about these ten virgins and they weren't ready. And the, as soon as Jesus leaves this Olivet, it's kind of the end of the Olivet Discourse. As soon as he's made these pronouncements, he tells all these stories about being watchful and ready and anticipating. And we're living in this. We're watching and we're paying attention. And in the midst of that, what we find out what it means to be watchful and to be ready is not that you're doing all the weird numerology of all these nutcases that are constantly predicting the return of Christ. I'm not advocating for any of that. What it means to be watchful and ready is that today I should be kind to my neighbors. Today, right now, because I know he's coming, I shouldn't plan, I shouldn't start planning, like, how can I get away with some shady thing? What you should be thinking is like, man, I could get busted tomorrow, and so I'm going to be nice today. This is, this, is what we're, this is what we're called into, all right? All right, Brad. Yeah, I was just going to comment on, on that same story because it's a little bit of a counterbalance to this idea of coming soon. It's more that he's coming suddenly, and it even says that the bridegroom was a long time coming. That's right. So they, they fell asleep. That's right. And so, so you, have the, you have this weird, this kind of like in the New Testament, well, in the Old Testament too, you have this already not yet, this come and, go, come and stay kind of thing that, that goes on. And so Jesus does give these tips. He's a long time coming, and it's going to feel like a long time coming. That's what Peter says. Listen, all the scoffers are going to come scoffing, right? That's what scoffers do, according to Peter. And they say, where is this coming that he promised, right? And there's this sense of like, I don't think he's coming anymore because it's been, it's been my expectations have not been met, and so who knows what else is true. And so it may be a while, and yet we are to live with a sense of the imminent immediacy of this, okay? Now, one more thing. Okay, Kelly Sue, and there's one idea that I want to, that's important to kind of frame all of this. Kelly. Sorry, in your list of coming soons. Yeah. Um, I just, there's one in the gospel, well, at least one in the gospel. As I'm looking at John 16. Jesus himself says, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me. That's right. Even Jesus refers to it. This is what he's talking about, sending the Holy Spirit. That's right. It's, it's, you're absolutely right. Jesus views it as a little while. It's, it's absolutely, it's all over the place. In the, in the Gospels, and the Epistles, there's this anticipation of really two things. Number one, you're, it's, it's not, we're, we're not waiting for the end times. We're in the end times. This is it. And he's coming soon. Okay? Now, if we are to say, if you were to make the case that you live in the eschaton. Eschaton is your fancy pants theological word for the end times, right? The eschaton is upon us right now. This is the end times. It's been the end times. Your whole life, has, the whole Western civilization is a product of the end times, okay? What is the, this is, this, here's, your, here's your big theology quiz. What is the essential characteristic of the eschaton? What is it that defines the end times. Just one single thing. What is it? Apostasy. Uh, okay, no, that's, that, is, that is a characteristic. Apostasy is a characteristic, but that's not the, that's not the defining characteristic. That's like the, the bummer side effect. Do you know what it is? What is it? Uh, that's what we are to do, but what is the fundamental reality of the thing? Uh, close. This is what happens. Mm, the kingdom of God is here. Yes, okay, here it is, because this is too out of a question. It's resurrection. The eschaton is about the resurrection from the dead. Okay? Now, do you know why you're living in the eschaton right now? 
Because it already started, okay? Because Jesus has been raised from the dead. You too will be raised from the dead. You guys, the strange thing about Jesus is not that he was raised from the dead. Everyone who ever lived will be raised from the dead, without question. Every single human being will come back to life. That's the eschaton. What's really strange about Jesus is that he went really early. You have lived your entire life in a world in which a man has been raised from the dead. It has begun. It just isn't finished yet. It'll be finished when he comes back. Does that make sense? So when the New Testament talks about that, it's upon us. We're here. We're living in the last days. We are living in the last days because Jesus is risen. He's gone. He is, uh, 1 Corinthians calls him the first fruits. Now, we're not really an agricultural society, so that may not have as much meaning. What does it mean that he is the first fruits? Do you know that what this image kind of is meant to convey, Herrick? He's the best. He's like in the old time, the Old Testament, you know, you gave your first fruits to God. Yes, okay, but it's not, it's not his bestness, okay? He is the best. I don't disagree with that. But that's not the centerpiece of what's available here. Yeah, Suzanne? Uh, look, it is your first harvest, but it has predictive value about the rest of the harvest. That which it's the you guys, it's the sample. You know when you go to the ice cream store and you don't know if you want this one or that one, and so they give you a sample. And the assumption is whatever they fit on that little tiny spoon is emblematic of the whole friggin' scoop, right? Right. Whatever's true of this is going to be true of this. That's Jesus. Jesus is the sample taste of the ice cream. And if Jesus rose from the dead, you're going to rise from the dead, right? That's, that's what it's saying. If you're in him, then you'll be raised unto eternal life. Everyone is raised. Some are raised to a judgment, but others are raised to live forever. If you are in him, if you're, you're this little scoop, what happened to him? You'll be like him. And so you live in the eschaton. It's now. It's been going on for a long, long time. We're just waiting. But one guy has been raised from the dead. At the, whenever he comes back, the rest of us join. And Peter is saying, hey, listen, the day is near. It's upon us. It's right here. And therefore, do what? Okay? You're living in this season where resurrection is imminent. And so what do we do? Now, you might think maybe there's some extraordinary behavior, some unusual thing in light of the arrival at the end. But instead, Peter becomes very, I don't know how to describe this. This is very prosaic. Above all, never forget this. Here's your highest priority. What does he say? Keep loving one another. Keep, keep loving one another earnestly. Mm-hmm. Now, first of all, it's, it's kind of sweet that he assumes that we're already doing that, right? He doesn't say start doing it. He says, hey, just carry on. Keep doing it, Doug. All right? Keep loving one another earnestly. This is it. This is the chief ethic of the kingdom, right? Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? And he responded with two. Love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is it. This is what we are to do. In light of that, our lives are to be marked, how can I love my neighbor well? How can I love my spouse well? How can I love my children well? And then if you really want to go crazy on this, how can I love my enemies well? Right? How do I love well? Keep Although I will say, Peter's focus here is within the church. At this moment, his focus is, when he talks about, when he uses each other language, he's talking about within the community of believers. We are also to love our enemies. 
but what Peter is saying, listen, he's coming. Let's, let's dig deep. Let's love well. All that we do is this. And then he gives a reason. Okay, and this is what I, I want to spend a little bit of time unpacking this. What's the reason he, okay, we know that it's, Jesus is coming. In light, of the, in light of Jesus' imminent return, that we're living in the moment of, re, the, in the season of resurrection, awaiting our own. Love each other well. Love each other eagerly. Keep doing that. But then he makes a claim. What's his particular claim? Is it he's going to make all things new? Um, well, does he say that right here? I mean, it is true he's making all things new, but there, there's a claim he makes right here. Um, listen, here it is. Above all, love each other deeply because... Because love covers over a multitude of sins. Okay, what is that? Let's, I want to I stay here for a minute. What does that mean? Love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. And what's, what does that mean? Don, you got a thought? Well, each day I do some really good things. And some of them look like I'm loving. But in reality, sometimes it's not... The most important thing isn't what I do, but it's why I did it. Okay. And sometimes I look really good because I'm trying to look good, but on the inside, that's not the real story. And so I think what he's saying here is that everything we do ought to start from, from admit, administering God's grace. It ought to all be coming from him. But the love that I throw out there sometimes is covering something that's sinful on the inside. Okay, so, so this is great. So there's, there's basically two broad, two broad interpretive options. Okay, and Don is raising the first, right? First option is that my love covers my sins, right? So if I'm really nice to you guys and then I do something stupid, you might be more inclined to like let it go because like I was nice to you yesterday and the fact that I'm like in a snippy mood or I stole your parking spot or I ran over your dog, you're gonna let it go because... Generally, but if I'm usually, if you, every time I see you, I'm just like snippy and mean and short-tempered, you're going to be like, put them in jail, right? So my love, my, the manifestation of my love might incline you to cover my sins, right? That's one possibility. Jennifer? Could it be forgiveness? You know, that if some, it, it's a little different than what you're saying. It's that it doesn't cover it. I just choose not to go back and remember it. Um, who, who are you in this illustration, though? I'm, if I'm loving you and you do something, I don't bring it up later. I forgive. There's a forgiveness part. I'm not sure. Okay, so is it that, uh, I just want to make sure that we're clear, because I want to get these two camps in your brain. So one option is that when I'm loving, if I, if I love well, you will forgive my sin. You'll overlook things. The other option is that if I am loving... I will overlook your sins. Is that the other one that you're, you're framing? Okay, so that, that's, your, that's your two broad options, right? It doesn't mean that when it says love covers over a multitude of sins, doesn't mean that my love inclines you to overlook my sin, or doesn't mean that my love inclines me to overlook your sin. These are your two broad options. And they're both, there's a plausibility to both, and there's some biblical support for, for both. And so I wonder, wonder what you guys think. Lily? Sure. So if I decide then to forgive, um, I've rendered my unforgiveness powerless because I've you know, walked in 
Yes. So there's a sense of the, that we could love by faith. That I might really be frustrated with you, but I'm going to choose to be kind. And if I choose, it's kind of there's a fake it till you make it. If, if I will make a decision to pray for my enemies, who are, is now you in this illustration. Like, if, I'm going to, if, I, if I choose to love you, then it might be that lo and behold, I actually end up loving you. Like, my decision to walk by faith can play that out. You look confused. Did I, did I misunderstand you? Yes. Um, like it reminds me of the proverb, um, uh, one who repeats a matter separates close friends, one who uh, covers an offense seeks love. Yes. Um, so it's kind of the flip side, but it reminds me of that. Yeah. And I think, I think so I think all these things are, they're absolutely in view here that, that however love does its work, it's also going to produce something profitable and fruitful and, and a blessing to others, right? That's just always the case. Bob, did you want to jump on it? Yes, okay. I believe that that is the source matter for, for this passage. Okay, so let me read it again. This is Proverbs ten twelve says, Hatred stirs up dissension, but love covers over all wrongs. And I'm pretty sure that that's what Peter's actually quoting here when he says this. All right, now James does it too. This is not original. Peter, James says the same thing. James James's, uh, passage is 520. Remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. I think, I think that the primary thing that, that what the proverb is saying, that James is saying, and that Peter is saying, is that when I behave with love, I will necessarily be overlooking your sin. That when, what it means for Jesus to love you is that he no longer treats you as culpable for your badness. Now, he doesn't overlook his sin because it's paid for, Right, so the the word overlook can kind of have some faulty theological. Maybe I shouldn't use that term. That might 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 confuse. He doesn't overlook our sin. He pays for our sin. He's deeply conscious of our sin, but he separates it from us. That I think that the bullseye of this is that if I'm loving my neighbor as I'm instructed to, then I will be more inclined to treat them with grace. And you know this, right? Because the way that you you do this to yourself, like your 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 most infallible guide for love is the way that you love yourself, right? You love you. And you are so quick to kind of be like, well, yeah, but he had a good reason for doing that, right? Isn't that, isn't that your nature? Don't you, aren't you, by, by your natural inclination, is you're like, well, I mean, she was thinking about that, and that's why, but if you understood her circumstances, you wouldn't be bad with that. Like, we do this all the time. And if we would do that to other people, if I would love other people, then I'd be less inclined to be annoyed by them and to be frustrated by them. And I'd be like, well, I get it. You know, it's cool. Right? And I think that's what he's saying, is, is an invitation to that. Catherine? Yeah, I've noticed that, um, I like what you said about love by faith. Sometimes I've been very, very hurt, and, and I simply make the decision, I just decide, Lord, I'm going to love them, and you just show me how. And then I notice that we're changed. I'm changed permanently, and my feelings change. It sort of goes goes along with it. It kind of pulls me. How am I, I'm trying to say that it, it just, I, I, I'm still hurt. I'm still angry. I'm still upset. But 
I'm going to love them. I'm going, and, I'm, and I'm going to forgive them. That's right. And then, and I keep reading the word, and then slowly I'm changed. So what you just said, things just don't bother me as much. It's absolutely the case that we can make a conscious decision to behave in some way, and then our emotions will follow. This is it's just this is just a truism, and so. Which also means that if I'm sitting around ranting and raving about how angry I am at somebody, I get angrier. Do you know this? You don't get less angry. You get more angry. This, this, this principle is so actually true. Did you know that if you smile, you become happier? Yeah. Did you know that if you put a pencil between your teeth and bite it, you become happier? <laughs> this is actually true. Like, even if you're smiling... Not because you were trying to be happy, but just you're like the muscles. There's, our souls and our bodies are connected. So when we, it's so strange, but I promise you that it's true. Um, when we make a decision to love, then the, the emotions can follow. When we make a decision to hate, the emotions follow that too. It's just all, all in there. Okay, the clock is ticking. A couple, couple folks, and then we're going to move on to the last idea here. Dan. Uh, to me, this is a, it's a community idea, not an individual idea. Peter's talking about the group. Yep. Um, love one another earnestly. The, the love covering a multitude of sin, I think, is more an issue I think for the it is. community than it is, and it, it, it picks up elements of, of both yeah. of this, that, okay, I'm going to act lovingly even if I'm feeling selfish, kind of like what Donna was saying, you know, I, even if I'm doing this for selfish reasons, I know that this could be perceived as loving, I'm going to go ahead and act this way because it will benefit other people, even though I get a lot of benefit out of it too, as well as Excellent. what we've been talking about. The goal here is is communal. Not it's not about me. It's not about you individually. It's about the church. I think that's I think that's brilliant. I think that's absolutely right. And so the sense that if the way that Don was framing it, his kind of first kind of opener is is absolutely the case, right? That you are going to be more inclined to be gracious to me if you have felt like I have loved and served you well. Right, and if I'm not, then you're going to be like, let them, let them burn, you know, whatever. Right, and so there's something in the community that that is both sides of this, and there is this swirling mass of what if we just lived in a community where everybody loved everybody and we were thoughtful to each other, and when somebody is slighted, we're quick to we're quick to to to, get, to apologize. We're not we're not quick to take offense. Man, that'd be amazing. We should do that, you know. That'd be amazing since he's coming soon and all, you know. Okay, so here's the last thing that he says. If he flows out of this, love keeps no record of wrongs, right? That's, that's the way Paul puts it in, in uh, 1 Corinthians, or love keeps, what is that? That's 1 Corinthians 13. That's Paul, yeah. Love keeps no record of wrongs. We're not going to be doing this. We're loving, we're serving, we're doing all these things. And then he, he flows right out of that into this thing about gifts. Take a look at this. So where's the text? He says, Okay, the end of all things is near, okay? Love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. And then he says this. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. There's more of DFPs, one another. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with all the strength that God provides so that in all things God may be praised. Okay, now... Spiritual gifts is a funny topic in the New Testament because it shows up over and over and over again, but never the same way twice, okay? If you've ever taken a spiritual gifts assessment class, it's like, hey, here's the, here's the 12 gifts, you know, check, 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 or 14 gifts, or however they count them up. And I would suggest to you that that's total nonsense, okay? That there is no canonical list of spiritual gifts. 
If there was, it would appear in the Bible. Instead, you get like a, a collection of gifts mentioned here and, a, and an overlapping but somewhat discreet gifts over here and then a few different times that they'll show up. There is no one like, here's the list, check from the box, okay? It's an artificial construct that some book publisher thought would be useful, okay? And so don't worry about that. What, you, what instead you have is all kinds of myriad varieties of ways that God gifts his people. What Peter is doing here, however, I believe... I'm 95% sure of this, okay? So I might be wrong, but I think this is true. Um, he's not offering yet another selection of, of gifts. He's categorizing them all. That all the gifts fall into two camps. What are the two sorts of gifts that Peter is talking about? Speaking and serving. Speaking and serving, okay? So this is helpful. The gifts are in some manner, they're speaking gifts or they're serving gifts. So what are the speaking gifts? Teaching, prophecy, tongues, uh, encouragement. These things are all these are a bunch of verbal stuff. And then the service gifts, what are those? Hospitality. Hospitality. Administration. Administration. Leadership could kind of fit in a little bit of both of those, really. Okay. But so generally speaking, you might be you, you might find that your gifts land in the speaking category. It's, you've got the gift of encouragement, right? You've got the, you're a teacher. You are, you know, there's things that it's your mouth moving. And then there's everything else that are all about service. That you're like, hey, I'm going to administrate this. I'm going to be behind the scenes. I've got the gift of helps, whatever, however that plays out. And whatever category, there's this big list. This, I think Peter's wise here to not try. Like if Peter had given us another list and somebody would think this is the list, right? There's no list. There's a myriad of ways that he may have gifted you, but it probably falls in one of these two camps, okay? And what if he has, Charlie? What if you have a gift that's essentially verbal? Or what if you have a gift that is essentially service-oriented? What are you supposed to do about it, according to Peter? What is the essential usage here of this? Okay, so all the gifts are for the service of others, right? He give, gave it to you, gave it to me to the benefit of you. He gave it to you for the benefit of us. All the, the, our gifts are not meant to be hoarded. They're meant to be shared. If he gave the gift of whatever it is, it's meant to be shared with others. But there's a particular attribute, a particular essential reality here that he says about it. How should you speak? How should you serve? So that God might be glorified. Um, that's the end goal. But, what, but there's a, just look at the text. Yes. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. That feels weird to me. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength that God provides. So that and everything God may be praised, right? But the thing that energizes and drives all exercise of all gifts, whether they're verbal or service-oriented, is that this is the Lord working through you. Okay? That's creepy if you're me, because now I'm like, okay, so any Yahoo can get up and teach and claim that it's thus saith the Lord? Like, that's... I'm like, whoa, easy, easy, easy. Be very careful about that. But that is what he's saying. Kelly? That's consistent with the um, verse prior to it that each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others faithfully, administering God's grace. That's right. You're, you're, you're administering, you're, you're stewarding a gift that came from God. It's God's grace. It's not your. That's right. Merely your talent. So Kelly's saying, what, what Peter says just before that is whatever gift you've been given, you need to faithfully administrate. You faithfully you're using this thing as if it was from the Lord it, because it is, okay? Now, let's think about, okay, let's think about this. You could say that if I'm speaking, I'm a teacher, and so I'm speaking the very words of God. 
that that could give me some kind of like arrogant imprint because I'm like, well, this is thus saith the Lord, so, you know, whatever I say goes, okay? That's really a dangerous thing, okay? So number one, James warns us that not many should presume to be teachers because the teachers will be judged more severely. I think this is why. Because you probably have at some level a default assumption that what I'm telling you is true, right? So I need to feel the weight of that and not be like flippant or lackadaisical or sloppy or wrong, right? I need to be really careful about that because teachers tend to be trusted people and sometimes the teachers get it wrong. So we should be really careful about that, okay? But there's other things besides. If I have a consciousness that when I'm teaching, if you have a consciousness when you're speaking or serving that really is the Lord behind that, what should that do? How should that, how should that man, what does it mean if you think like, oh, this is a divine thing that I'm plugged into. What, what should that produce in you? What is that? Enormous humility. It's like, oh my gosh, like who am I to be the carrier of this? Who am I to serve these people? Who am I to speak to these people? Am I really an ambassador for the king? This should, this should produce in me an earnestness and a humility and a, and a sense of the, the non... I shouldn't be flippant about these things. Very good. What else? If it's the Lord... If it's his gift to you to serve others, how should it matter? Kind of a combination of humility and a holy boldness. Yes. You are equipped. That's right. So it's the other side of it, too. It's like, okay, you know, I don't know if you were in first service, but Brian talked about how Moses was all terrified to go speak. God called him to speak, and he's afraid to do it. Well, his humility there is good, but it's like, dude, I mean, God finally gets to the point. He's like, listen, it's me. It's going to be fine. Like, I'll have your brother do it. Here's a stick. Just go. And... And we shouldn't be so timid. We should be like, okay, Lord, if you're, if you're behind it, then like win, lose, or draw, like I'm all in, right? So there should be both this humility and yet a boldness. That's interesting. What else? Dan? It's utter awe that God would choose to do things this way. Right? And, and what joy that we're not, you guys, you're not in the stands. You're on the field. Like God has determined that whatever he accomplishes in the world, whatever he accomplishes in the world, it's coming through the vehicle of us. What a delight that we get to, we get to play. He's nuts. I know, it is, it is a, it is a uh, it's hard to say that God is risky, a risk taker because he's omniscient, but like, my goodness, what an unusual strategy, right? And what a, what a joy that we get to matter. Like, you're not just making stuff up, but you're doing things that in a billion years will continue to echo. Right? It's exceptional. What else? What else should characterize it? Yeah. Um, I used to be so afraid to say anything that I, even though I felt it was from God, that I, I was so afraid of getting it wrong, I just didn't do it. And then I just feel like I've changed that. Like, like Mother Teresa said, if you're afraid to say it, say it anyway. Because God will take care. He kind of taught me that even if I get it wrong or partially wrong, you know, he'll take care of that. That's absolutely right. That if, he, if he's gifted us, he's given us the ability to do it, we're going to do our best. We're going to get better. Your gifts are not immaculate. Like teachers teach things wrong. Servants serve in ways that are like sloppy or self. Like, we're, we're, but we can get better at our gifts. Right? You're not born with some ability. We can develop and grow. And along the way, God's going to redeem it. When I was in, so I was on staff with crew, we used to go to Kazakhstan pretty frequently, Central Asia, the middle of absolute nowhere. We had teams there that we would send, and I would go visit our teams every year to just encourage them and recruit the next, the next team of missionaries to go to Almaty or to Karaganda. And these are places you've never heard of. They're absolutely 
in the middle of nowhere, okay, in the, in the steppe of Central Asia. And what, we were there, and we met this um, community of people, a group of believers, um, and one of the women uh, was like a smiler. You know people that like, when they're old, they're going to just have like the wrinkles on their eyes because they just smiled all day, every day. Like, you know, like, that you just, they're so winston to be around. I love these people. I'm not one of those people, but I love them. Um, but she had a woman on, um, in, they ran this, this little house, this strange little business, um, and there was a woman in her group who was essentially their housekeeper. And she had come to Christ late in life. It's a Muslim country-ish. It's a, it's a Soviet Muslim country, so they'd driven out a lot of the Muslims. But to whatever extent there was a native faith, it was Islam. Um, and this woman, had, she'd been abused by her husband. It was just kind of in a very marginalized place. But she, she heard the gospel. She was, when I met her, she was probably 60. And I think maybe she came to Christ when she was about 50. And... Um, but when she came to Christ, she kind of became part of this community of people. And there's all these smarties that, you know, know how to teach the Bible or that, you know, that know how to do this. you got these evangelists. you got all these people that are, like, bringing things to, to bed as, as God has distributed gifts. And she didn't know how to do any of it because how would she, why would she? Her whole life she hadn't been in an environment that was nurturing her in these things. But, but she had cleaned her house about 10,000 times. And she was really good at keeping house. And she recognized that this community of people and this property, this business that they ran, they needed somebody to kind of like keep the place clean. And so she cleaned the place to the glory of God and she was just delighted to have, this is her contribution to this thing. And somebody else might go outside and be the apologetic argument guy or whatever, you know, that's fine. But she's going to make the place tidy and wholesome and welcoming and loving. And she just had this sense, it was like this was what she was doing. She's like, whoever serves... Right? Whoever serves should do so as if it's the Lord that is serving through her. And I remember meeting her. I'm like, I love these people. This is one of my favorite things. Whenever we'd go back, would be to, to go see these guys that weren't part of Crusade. They were just, just native believers in this, in this community. And she, you know, isn't it crazy? This woman uh, taught me as much about, like, the value of serving in the Lord's name as anybody that I've ever met. Because she just, she just told the story of, like, you know, I know how to clean. And the Lord is, and she's going to use that. God. What are you good at? What do you love? What is actually a benefit to others? Whatever that thing is, I don't care if it's on a list or not, right? Whatever that thing is, do it as if the Lord has equipped you to do it because he has. Do it for his glory because that's why everything exists. Do it believing that he is in you, motivating you, equipping you to to be a blessing to others because that's what the whole game is all about because he's coming and he's coming soon. Charlie? Well, this whole train of thought just really magnifies the parable of the talents. Yes. You know, what we have is gifts or talents. That's right. We don't bury them in the ground. Yep. Do what we can do with them. Whatever God has entrusted to us, whether it's you know time, talent, treasure, whatever we have is ours to offer back to him. It's all his. It was, it's always been his, and we can use it uh, for his good purposes. And there's a joy to us when we do. And we're long. We've got to stop. Thanks for coming. We'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>